morning we are continuing our journey through Acts, and believe it or not, we're actually coming up to the last uh, about two months, month and a half, something like that, uh, of Acts. The last several chapters in Acts are going to go real fast, because from here on, they tend to be stories that are much longer, and so even though there's still a number of chapters left, um, it's better to do them together than to break them up. So... Um, we're going to be wrapping up Acts uh, probably by the end of August. And then uh, going into September, this fall, my, my plan is, and I'm praying about it with uh, those uh, who teach here with me, is to do a short series uh, for about a month or so on the church. And just what is the church? And why, why do we do the things we do? And what does the Bible say about the church? And how did we get here in church history? That Because uh, this obviously looks very different than the first church is. And so we're going to be exploring some of those questions together. But for now, uh, for the next couple months, we're going to continue in Acts. This morning, I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to challenge you um, to be really broad with me. So two of, two of my, and here's, here's what I mean, two of my favorite things in the world um, are to gaze at someone or something. So one of them is to sit, you know, face to face with one of my children and those moments where you just try to capture the moment and don't let it pass, you hold on to it and you're looking in your child's face and their eyes are looking back at you and you see all that's already happened in their little life and all that's to come that you hope and you fear and you pray for. And there's such overwhelming beauty and love as you gaze into that person's soul and they look back at you. You know what I'm talking about? All right. So there's weeks we do that with the word of God and, and with him where we gaze at something very specific and we look at it and we receive from it. Then my, my second other thing that I love doing, and this is one of my absolute favorite things to do in life, is to go scuba diving or snorkeling. And um, if you've ever been scuba diving or snorkeling, uh, especially if you've gone in the tropics where there's coral reefs and, and that sort of thing, you can't possibly focus on one thing because there's so much beauty in every direction. Up, down, side to side, and just could lose myself for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours just gazing at the fish and the coral. And, and that is one of the most satisfying things I have ever experienced in life, is to be in a coral reef. And it's not this one focus. I mean, for a moment, something catches your vision and you look at it, but then it's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and you're just blown away by all of it, and you get out and you're done, and you're like, oh, I wish I would have had more time to look at this. I wish I would have had more time for this. There's weeks where we, or days where we engage the Word of God like that. Does that make sense? Today is one of those days. So, I am challenging you, my sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers, in the faith, that today I'm going to cover more than I typically cover, more than maybe is normally covered in a sermon. I'm going to put out all sorts of information, and it is your job to be the scuba divers, the snorkelers, and as you see things and hear things and different things pop up, allow the Spirit of God to let you focus in on whatever he would have you focus in on. Does that make sense? 
Can we do that together? We'll go scuba diving with me? I'd love to take you. All right, let's pray and just ask God uh, to do that this morning. God, is, um, we engage your marvelous word. <laughs> we could spend, and, and we will, we'll spend the rest of our lives studying the scripture and what's in here, and we will hardly have begun to discover what there is to discover in it. So this morning, as we look at one chapter in the Bible, it connects all the way back to Genesis. It connects to 1 and 2 Kings. It connects back to the teachings and ministry of Jesus. It, we can, I can just see these branches reaching out from these stories in Acts chapter 20 in all different directions. And so rather than offering three points in a poem this morning, what I want to offer, God, is a captivating vision of your people living with you in these stories. So as we engage your word this morning, we invite your spirit to teach us the word. We can't possibly learn from it unless your spirit is the one teaching us. So spirit of God, teach us your word this morning and help us view what you want us to view, both individually and collectively. We pray this in your name, God. Amen. I read this uh, quote this week. I'm reading a book um, called The Jesus Creed by Scott McKnight about how Jesus took the Shema from uh, Deuteronomy 6 and Jesus uh, made it his own in both uh, the greatest commandment and in the Lord's Prayer. He takes elements of the Shema in a famous prayer and he makes it his own. And uh, Scott McKnight calls this the Jesus Creed. And it's a phenomenal book. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend uh, engaging this book called The Jesus Creed by Scott McKnight. In this, he has a quote by a friend of his who's also a theologian. His name is Mark Powell. He's a pretty remarkable man in his own right, if you haven't heard of him. And Mark Powell is writing about the complexity of walking with Jesus in the midst of how confusing our world is. And he says this, and I thought it would be a really good place to start for us this morning. Mark Powell writes, We cannot have a relationship with our Christology. We can only have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So knowing the right things is, is certainly part of what God has called us to, but it's not the actual thing. We can't have a relationship with our Christology. We have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, our soteriology, which is the study of salvation, our soteriology cannot actually save us from our sins, but our Savior can. Our ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, our ecclesiology does not make us one. The Lord of the church makes us one. Our eschatology, that's the study of the end of things, our eschatology will not transform this flawed universe Jesus, the King of Kings and Prince of Peace, will do that. And no matter how much we love theology, theology will never love us back. Only God in Christ can love us. And this is why believing at its core is a relationship. So this morning as we study the word, I want to invite you fresh and again into that relationship with God. As we study his word, it's not just to learn things. We want to learn things, but it's so that we might actually know Jesus and be known by him, to gaze in his face and to be gazed back at by him. 
So a driving passion of Paul, entire apostolic ministry, is to show the Christian Gentiles that they owe their faith to the Jewish people. So this is a constant theme in Paul's ministry and his writings. As he's planting the churches in Gentile places, he's teaching them, you actually owe your faith to what God did in the Jewish people. This is in Romans where he says, God took a wild olive branch and he grafted it in to the original tree, but he will chop it off and throw it into the fire if it does not bear fruit. We see this theme come up multiple times in Paul's writings. God has included the Gentiles in the work that he began in the redemptive story of Israel. But Paul also desires to show in the other direction, he desires to show the Jewish people that the Gentile believers are actually the fulfillment of Israel's ultimate call to be a light to the nations. In other words, the Gentiles can't be who they're meant to be without it having gone through Israel. But Israel can never step fully into her birthright, the calling of God on Abraham and all of his people afterwards, until the Gentiles come to know and worship the true God. So it works both ways. Abraham and Israel were blessed to be a blessing. This is right away in the call of Abraham. You are blessed to be a blessing to the nations. As Paul leads the collection of funds from the Gentile churches for the Jerusalem church, we can see all of these things coming together. Paul is able to see the church through the eyes of God. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. This is what he writes in Galatians. Neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. There is one God, one body, one new people. The first thing I'd like on our scuba diving journey to invite you to do really quickly is just to pray in the quietness of your own heart. God, I would like to see the church not through my eyes, but through your eyes. Go ahead and confess that to the Lord. When God views the church, somehow, in some mysterious, amazing way, there's only one church. There's 20,000 denominations <laughs> who claim to worship Jesus Christ. But when God views the church, there's only one church. There's only one body, Paul writes in Ephesians 4. One. We don't see things like that. I certainly don't. But this is how God sees. And we are called to submit to the vision of God. This is in Romans 15, which Paul wrote. Uh, scholars believe he wrote it during Acts chapter 20. He says, he's talking about the collection of the funds from the different Gentile churches. And he's talking about how their relationship is dependent on one another. He says, I hope to see you. This is to the Romans. He's never been there before. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, that's Israel, Jerusalem, their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered them, uh, delivered this to them, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain 
by way of you. So Acts uh, chapter 20, where we pick up the story, this is right after the riot in Ephesus, which I talked about last week. Um, And uh, immediately after the riot in Ephesus, this is where we pick up. Paul has been in Ephesus for over two years. This is the longest he's ever been any one place. So he's put down relatively deep roots as far as Paul goes. And now for the first time in a while, he's going to be moving on. And while he moves on in this chapter, he begins a long, roundabout, out-of-the-way journey to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to collect these funds from the churches, and he's going to take them to Jerusalem. This will be the last time he's in any of these areas in his lifetime. And so, um, as we'll read this chapter, we see there's a sadness as he encounters people, because they know this is the last time. They're going to see him. This is also when Paul wrote both Romans and 2 Corinthians. So this week, uh, when you leave from here, this would be a good week for you and your own uh, study of the scriptures to read both Romans and 2 Corinthians. This is the context uh, for for when he wrote uh, those epistles. Obviously, uh, probably of all Paul's writings, Romans is the most famous and the most uh, read and looked to, and in many ways, rightfully so. Um, A lot of people think of it as a systematic theology, Paul's systematic theology, which there's reasons for that, um, but it's not. It's clearly not a systematic theology because in systematic theology, you cover every major topic. And in Romans, Paul never talks about communion. He never talks about baptism. Um, There's major themes that Paul never touches um, in Romans. And yet, what Romans is about is, uh, at its core, is about our identity with the Lord, particularly our sonship, our daughterhood in God. This is the core of what Romans is. This is why chapter 8 rises in the middle of the book to the very pinnacle. And we read in that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our spirits pray, crying out, Abba, Father, because we have been adopted by Christ. So Paul writes Romans in the midst of this journey in Acts 20. So verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, that's the ride in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions, all right, so he leaves Ephesus in Asia, and he goes back up into Macedonia. Do you remember what churches are in Macedonia that he planted in his second journey? Pop quiz. What are the churches that he planted in his second journey in Macedonia? What's that? Antioch? Well, Antioch's the sending church from Syria. Uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, these are all, uh, all of these uh, churches are in Macedonia. So when he writes Thessalonians, he's writing it to this region. When he writes uh, uh, Philippians, he's writing it to this region. So he goes back from Asia Minor up into Macedonia, into Europe. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So verse 2, 1 and verse 2 is when he writes 2 Corinthians. And we know this because in 2 Corinthians he says, I'm coming to visit you soon. I'm sending this letter ahead of me so you'll be ready when I get there. Because the last time he was there, it was not good. The last time Paul had been there, um, they had rejected him. Uh, Some of the people in the Corinthian church had rejected Paul and had told him if he was to come back, he needed a letter of reference from an apostle they trusted. Now think about this. Who planted the Corinthian church? Paul did. Paul. Paul planted the Corinthian church. And on his second or third visit there, 
Some of them have the gall to tell him, well, if we're going to listen to your preaching, we like Apollos a lot better, and we like Peter a lot better, so you're going to have to get a letter of recommendation from them. Paul calls it his painful visit. And of all the epistles, if you're familiar with them, of all the epistles that Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians is far and away the most painful. And when you read it, if you're really reading it with emotion and with humanity and identifying with Paul, your heart breaks because these are people he loves that have rejected him. And so he writes 2 Corinthians in verse 1 when he's visiting Macedonia and he sends it ahead of them, uh, ahead of himself down to Greece with a few messengers. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. All right. Scholars believe that probably this could have taken, this, these three verses was probably about a year. So this isn't just like quick. He's going from different church to different church. We know he spends three months at least in Greece, and he spent a number of months um, in uh, Macedonia, and the journey took time. So this has been a while. There's passing of time here. This is when he writes Romans, our best guess. This is when he writes uh, the letter to the Romans, because we know in Romans he says, I'm traveling to Jerusalem, and then I want to visit you. And what happens immediately after this? He travels to Jerusalem, and then he goes in chains to Rome. And his hope is then to move on to, um, to Spain, but we don't know whether or not he ever made it uh, to Spain. Verse 4. All right, if you're looking for baby names, this is your, these are your verses. Sopater, the Berean. If you're looking for, if you want to found a town, there's some good, one, good town names in here too. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus accompanied him and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. And though, uh, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Anybody else want to try that one? <laughs> so the point here is that as Paul is going from church to church in Macedonia and in Greece, people are joining him. People are joining his traveling group, and they're traveling with him, and the plan is for them to go to Jerusalem together. They had collected a large sum of money, and anyone who knows about money knows that it's better to have more hands in the pot than one hand in the pot, right? Because money tends to stick to those who put their hands in it alone. So Paul, um, I think probably uh, for reasons of both safety and integrity, he's gathering all these people to represent the different churches uh, to travel with him back to Jerusalem. And we meet some of them here, Sopater and Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and Timothy, which we already know he's probably representing Ephesus at this point. We know Timothy served in Ephesus because of the letters to Timothy that Paul wrote, Tychicus and Trophimus. All of these are traveling with Paul back to Jerusalem to deliver the offering. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his, I don't want anybody complaining about my sermons. Listen to this. 
and he prolonged his speech until midnight. All right, let's use our imaginations together. Paul's been talking for six hours, <laughs> all right, from dinner to midnight. They're in a third-story room. It's probably warm. What happens when we get warm? We've been listening. What happens? Start to get sleepy. There's, there's just lamps. They don't have electricity. So what does lamp light look like? It's like, like flickering, hypnotic, uh, a light that's like slowly, you know, relaxing. So there's these lamps. Paul has been talking on and on and on. By the way, all of the sermons that are included in Acts are just distillations of much, much longer sermons. So when you read Peter's sermon in Acts 2, it was probably much, much longer. And all of Paul's sermons were much, much longer. Luke just takes the main points and boils them down. So Paul is talking about Abraham. He's talking about Isaac. He's talking about David. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about all of redemptive history. And he's tying it all into Jesus. Maybe he was even telling resurrection stories. And he's going on and on. And maybe they stop to eat a meal. Maybe they stop to sing a hymn. Maybe they stop to ask questions because they know this is the last time they're going to see their spiritual father. And if it was going to be the last time you ever saw him, wouldn't you have questions you wanted to ask him? And so this thing keeps going longer and longer. Verse 9, and a young man named Eutychus, here's another name idea for you. A young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. <laughs> and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. All right, keep yourself in that imaginative place. Can you imagine being in that upper room? Perhaps you're feeling sleepy. Perhaps you're just riveted to have this conversation with Paul and to be learning the things you're learning, and you're wide awake. And then all of a sudden, this boy, this child, he's probably a teenager, young teenager, falls out. Isaac come, falls out the window, probably about his age, and dies. What, what would we do? We'd stop, <laughs> right? We'd all rush out. And check on the boy. There's probably weeping. There's probably screaming. There's all sorts of uproar. Paul, apparently, very calmly, went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. So even this won't stop him. <laughs> and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. All right, so one of the things we should do as biblical students is we should always, every story you ever read in the Bible, every psalm, no matter where you are in Scripture, you should be reminded of other stories in Scripture because there is not a single story that happens all the Scripture that is not hyperlinked in a modern term or tied directly to another passage. Not one. Every single story you can read, you can trace it back. Almost every story can be traced back in some way to Genesis 1 and 2, God's intended creation in Genesis 3. But all of stories are linked together and joined together in Scripture. So when we read this story about the boy falling to his death and Paul coming down and leaning over him and seeing life in him, what stories should we be reminded of? Elijah? Who said Elijah? Elijah? Yeah, well done. Both Elijah and Elisha, right? Both of them raising young people from the dead. And in both cases, leaning over the child. In Elisha's case, he spread himself out on the child, foot to foot, hand to hand, mouth to mouth, on this dead child. 
and breathed life into him. Almost like God creating Adam and breathing life into his mouth in that way. What's, uh, what stories of Jesus should we be reminded of by this? Yeah, Lazarus. I think there's, I think there's another one that's, that's even closer linked. There's actually two more. What's that? Yes. Yeah, the, um, the synagogue leader who had the daughter um, who died. And what does Jesus do? He kicks everyone out of the room. He brings Peter, John, and James with him up into the room. And he speaks over her, rise up. And, and she, or no, he says, wake up. And, and then she wakes up. Um, and then the other story that it brings to mind is one of my absolute favorite stories. It's such a gem. And we spend so little time thinking about it. But Luke 7, where the widowed woman whose only son died, coming out of the town of Nain in the funeral procession, as Jesus is coming into the town, he sees the woman, and it says he was broken with compassion. And seeing the son, can you imagine walking up to a funeral procession and interrupting it of complete strangers? Jesus walks up, stops the procession out of the town, and says to the young man, rise up, and he gets up. And he gets up. Now, all of these stories, all of them, Paul knows by heart. He knows every word of every one of these stories. And this is really, really important for us to learn. Because if God would ever have us do miraculous things or, th- or, or things in faith like this, it should be in the example of what Christ and what those who have gone before us have already done. It'll take on a new flavor in our time, in our space, but it should be a direct example. We see this with Peter. When he raises Dorcas, he almost completely repita- uh, repeats, that's a word, repeats what he saw Jesus do in that upper room. He kicks everyone out of the room, and he prays over this woman who had died and invites her, Tabitha, rise up. This is, this is a good thing for us to learn. We should memorize these stories. Hidden your word in my heart, God. And then as we walk our days out, when we see parallels, oh, this reminds me of when God did this, then we know how to act because we know how God already acts and has already acted. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? I talked more about this a couple weeks ago when I compared miracles and magic. If you weren't here for that, I'd I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that a few weeks ago. um, One last thing here. In the book of John, the apostle John does not use the word miracle one time. Not once. Go read the book of John. You will not find the word miracle one time. What word does he use? Sign. Well done. Sign. Every miracle that Jesus performs in the book of John, in the gospel of John, John calls it a sign. Because at the heart of miracles, at the heart of healing, at the heart of anything like this, what's the actual point of it? To be a sign. To be a sign of Jesus. To point directly back to him. So John doesn't even mess with that word. He just says, Jesus performed this sign. I think this is a unique sign. As this boy falls out, I think this is a sign that pointed this early church and still through the scriptures points us back to Jesus today. And Paul's example of knowing the scriptures and just acting in accordance with the faith that God had given him for that moment. And you and I can walk with God in the same way. Because it's the same Lord, the same Savior, the same Spirit, the same God who dwells in us as dwelled in Paul 
that dwelled in Parker Ford Church that dwelled in that church. Amen? <laughs> same God. Same God. Same story. And they, I like, uh, I like Luke's understatement. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. <laughs> I guess so. He survived. Moving on. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assas, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met, at, met us at Assas, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samus. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So just in rapid order, he's going to all these places. In each place, he's visiting believers. He's praying. Um, and the group uh, with him that was already mentioned in the early verses is traveling with him. He sails past Ephesus, but he still wants to meet with the elders there because he wants to move on uh, to Pentecost. Now, again, let's use our biblical knowledge and our imaginations here. Paul taking a huge sum of money that's been gifted by all of these churches to deliver to the Jerusalem church. Why would that be significant to deliver on Pentecost? That's when they receive the Holy Spirit. And what gift has the Jerusalem church now shared with the rest of those who believe throughout the Gentile world? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, yeah. And well, they're sharing money back. You're right. Jerusalem was really impoverished at this point. Rome had, was raising taxes every single year. Taxes were going up in Jerusalem. So Paul, with this money, how fitting, how beautiful for Paul to deliver this gift to them on the celebration of the very day that God had given the ultimate gift to the church to share with them. Isn't that beautiful? Like full circle, poetic beautiful God movement. And so Paul, he's like, I want to get there by Pentecost because that would be so meaningful. Verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and uh, some journey, uh, I forget how many miles it is, but it's, it's a day's journey from uh, Ephesus to Miletus. And so he calls the elders of the church to come him. This is a good reminder for us that when God set up, uh, when, when God through his spirit, through the apostles and through Christ's word, obviously set up the church, the leadership, the leadership structure that God put in place were elders and deacons. And we see this in Acts. And so here we see he's calling for the elders to come and receive instruction. And when they came to him, he says to them, and again, same idea, this is a distillation of a much, much longer sermon. He probably spent all day with them, talking to them and answering questions. But this is what Luke sums up for us. He's saying to these Ephesus elders who he, who he bled with, who he sweat with, who he labored with, who he lived among for over two years. He says to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Everybody see that phrase, constrained by the Spirit? Everybody say constrained by the Spirit. This is a really, really interesting phrase that Paul uses. The, the word here for constrained, this is the only place where it's translated um, by constrained. Its actual literal meaning is, I am bound in chains. That's the literal meaning of this phrase. Now, who's, who's the, the subject of the binding of Paul? Who's bound him? The Spirit. So what he said to them, he says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem bound in chains by the Spirit. Isn't that an interesting phrase for Paul to use? Who else was bound, constrained by the Spirit, compelled to go to Jerusalem for suffering? Jesus. Receiving, you know, knowing full well what faced him. In fact, his disciples arguing, no, that's not going to happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. No, Jesus, bound by the Spirit of God, going to Jerusalem for suffering. Paul is now seeing himself in in his own right, in this same uh, storyline, being bound by the Spirit, being compelled by the Spirit. He's going to Jerusalem, even though the Spirit of God testifies to him that he will face suffering and trials. And we're going to read about that in chapter 21. There's prophetic warnings in each place he stops. In fact, he says it here. Except that the Holy Spirit, verse 23, testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Verse 24, but I do not account myself of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. All right, let's pause here in our scuba diving journey, and let's focus on this phrase. I want to invite you to pray this to the Lord, that each of us would make this our heart cry. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let me invite you to make that your own right now. Lord, I confess to you that in my own flesh, I keep wanting to take back control of my own life. But I pray, Lord, that I, my family, my children, my friends, my spiritual community, that we together would not account our own lives as anything, but would run the race set before us, pursuing you to the end, pursuing the ministry that you've given us to share the gospel, to love one another, and to love you. We pray this and confess it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now this really happened in the church of Ephesus. And we know this from church history. Timothy was sent by Paul to serve in Ephesus. And the goddess Artemis, which we read about last week, the, what happened is the persecution in Ephesus continued and it rose and rose. And then do you remember from your church history lessons who, um, which apostle ended up spending the remainder of his days serving in Ephesus? Apostle John. So after Jerusalem is destroyed in 70, Paul or John, he's, he faces his imprisonment and his um, captivity, goes to the island of uh, Patmos, but then he spends the majority of his ministry time going forward for the end of his life in Ephesus, and he becomes the spiritual father going forward of the church fathers who rise up in Ephesus. There's a legend that John walks into the temple in Ephesus. Um, and uh, he walks up to the statue and he commands it to fall in the name of Jesus and it fell down and broke. And that, uh, that's the church tradition on John serving in the city of Ephesus. But we know that of all the early church, uh, this is one where that the spirit of the enemy rose up to twist things and uh, persecute people uh, in a really unique way. So Paul's like speaking prophetically to Ephesus in this. Verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease. So he's been there for three years, he says. I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I command you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, which is interesting if you think back to the silversmiths coveting. Um, verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me and all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, let's read this together. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give. It is a greater blessing for us to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. All right, let's draw a parallel back to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Who constantly tried to stop him from suffering? His own disciples, those closest to him. Every step of the way. You shouldn't suffer. No, confusion. Whenever he would say, I'm going to go take my cross, they, they did, there was confusion. They tried to stop him every step of the way. The church has learned something here. Because even though Paul is saying, I'm suffering perhaps to the point of death, and even though there's prophetic words, what we'll see is no one tries to stop him as he journeys. That's interesting. We should learn from that as well. And the call that God has to encourage those who have this type of call in their lives. To be a blessing to them, a support to them. And so they're grieved because they won't see him, but they pray with him. And they continue to converse with him. So this is the map 
of Paul's third missionary journey, which we have essentially just wrapped up. It started in Antioch. It goes through Asia Minor. He spent over two years in Ephesus. Then this is what we read about this morning. He goes up into Macedonia, down into Greece for three months, back into Macedonia, back over here, down to Miletus, where he talks to the elders of Ephesus. And then next week, he gets on a boat and travels down in, uh, to Israel and to Jerusalem again. So that is uh, Paul's third missionary journey. This is 2 Corinthians 8, which he wrote during this trip. He says, now it is superfluous, that's a fun word, everybody say superfluous, for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, this is about the collection, of which I boast about uh, you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal, that's Paul's favorite word if you remember the early sermons in Acts, and your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this manner, so that you may be ready as I said you would, so he's putting the flames to their feet, <laughs> I told everybody that you were going to give, so uh, you better give. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready to give, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for, for being so confident. I just think it's so funny how he handled all of that. Verse 5, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of, uh, to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So this and Romans 15 is how we know that this is what Paul was doing in Acts chapter 20. Does that make sense? Does that piece some stuff together for you uh, that otherwise would not be pieced together? I know this is a lot of information. You're doing great. Eventually when you're scuba diving, you do run out of air. So we'll come up soon. Why the big collection? This is what N.T. Wright writes about this. He says, the collection was designed to remind the largely Gentile churches of their deep and lasting obligation to the Jewish people. You and I, 2,000 years removed, owe an obligation to the Jewish people. That God, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not even going to touch politically modern Israel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about redemptive history, God working through Israel, and then sending Jesus uh, to the Jewish people, and then blessing the nations. We owe a debt of, of gratitude to our spiritual forefathers who went before us in Israel and, and fought the good fight and walked faithfully with God in the midst of all the brokenness there. And it was designed to communicate to the Jerusalem church and perhaps to a wider Jewish audience the fact that the Gentile churches did not see themselves as a new religion and had no intention of cutting loose and creating a different kind of community. They were part of the same family and as such were doing what family always did, helping one another out as need arose. In all of this, we should be reminded of Ephesians chapter 4 along with John 17. These are two scriptures we should be reminded in all of this. Uh, my, we had an elder meeting earlier this uh, week, and for the time of devotion of ministry to the Lord, um, Mike, a brother Mike was leading, and he led us into this scripture. And I kept coming back to it the remainder of the week, thinking about this story of Paul traveling, gathering the money, and how Paul viewed the church. Listen to what he writes in Ephesians 4. To the elders in Ephesus, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? How do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, Paul? Let me answer it, he says, verse 2, with what? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace. There is how many bodies? 
one body. How many spirits are there? One spirit. Just as you were called to, how many hopes do we have? One hope that belongs to your call. How many lords are there? How many faiths are there? How many baptisms are there? How many God and Father over all is there? You can count how many ones are there. Seven ones. What's the number of completion? Seven. <laughs> it's a cool thought. Paul, wrapping all of this together in a spirit of completion, there is one body. We don't see the church like this, though. To our great, great shame, we do not see the church as one through the eyes of God. And this is a call of God upon us in our generation to set aside what can be set aside so that we might focus on what God sees. This is a major call of this generation in church history. To set aside the things that can be set aside that are of second or third importance, that we might focus on that which is of most importance. John 17, the high priestly prayer, I pray that they would be one. Even as you and I, I and the Father, are one. May they be one. I and them, and they and me. Spend the rest of your life warring for the oneness of church, and you will not go wrong. Oneness of the body of Christ. Fighting for his bride. Fighting for his people. Warring on behalf of his body. You will not go wrong. I'm not saying we let go of our uniqueness as a body. That's not what I'm saying. We maintain who we're meant to be as a unique expression of that. But we have got to see through the eyes of God that there is one body, one church. Which brings us back to where we started, our last stop on our scuba diving journey this morning. A driving passion of Paul's entire apostolic ministry is to show the Gentile, Christian Gentiles that they owe their faith to the Jewish people God has included the Gentiles in the work that he began in the redemptive story of Israel. But Paul also desires to show the Jewish people that the Gentile believers are the fulfillment of Israel's ultimate call to be a light to the nations. Abraham and Israel were blessed to be a blessing. As Paul leads the collection of funds from the Gentile churches for the Jerusalem church, we can see all these things coming together. Paul is able to see the church through the eyes of God. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is one God, one body, one new people. One last point of confession for us. Uh, praise team, you can come back up. But just for a moment, I would invite you to close your eyes and confess to the Lord the places where you and I have desired to divide him or divide his body where he says there's one body. Father, I'm going to pray these words back to you. With all humility and gentleness, we desire to walk with you, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit and the bond of peace. For God, there is one body and one spirit, and we were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There is but one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Teach us your word. Teach us your word, God, and teach us to see the church like you see her. We pray this in your precious name.